All right, man. Welcome back to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is part two of episode 300, or in other words, the way we do the numbers, it will come across to you as 300.2. Whenever you see a point two, it basically means part two of the previous episode. And of course, just to reiterate, point fives are interim episodes that probably do not go a full two hours. So you understand how the numbering works. Anyhow, we're going to dig back in to where all roads lead and to how we've come to be where we are now in a kind of world upside down, gone crazy. Uh, but we're going to open up with the importance of the sky clock here, particularly the equinox, which is going to be here pretty quick. And I stumbled on this over a year ago, meant to look into it more, St. Peter to be specific, a so-called Catholic saint. And uh, as I looked up the equinox again this year, by the way, it will be on the 17th for the northern United States and a day earlier for the southern United States, I realized that St. Patrick seems to know when the real equinox is, and then it all came flooding into me. You will hear from mainstream that the spring equinox is on the 20th or the 21st of March, which is not true. The reason it is not true is because it is not equal day and equal night, which is what the equinox is. The truth about the equinox, which for some reason has to be lied about is it depends on your geography. In other words, if I was in California, I would not see the sunrise at the same time a man in New York saw the sunrise. The equinox is no different. It is dependent on geography. Turns out the Catholic church knows exactly when the equinox is because St. Patrick's day is on the true equinox for the Northern United States and wait for it in the Emerald Isle or Ireland too. Same day because of latitude. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And an absolutely beautiful afternoon it is. So we're going to open here with a, uh, a proof. We're going to take a mainstream wiki paragraph on St. Patrick, and then I'm going to decode it to reality for everybody. This is no different than what goes on in scripture and religions and everything. And it always comes back to nature. And why does it come back to nature? Because we are nature. Nature made us. When we die, we will go back to nature. Well, part of us. We can always hold the higher mindset, the human beings, the soul, or whatever you would want to say, uh, go on from here, which I accept. But the point is, uh, we are of the dust, and we will return to the dust verbatim. So, Jason, let's jump in, and we'll give the wiki entry on the dead saint, wait for it, that is encoding the equinox. St. Patrick was a 5th century Romano-British Christian missionary and bishop in Ireland. Known as the Apostles of Ireland, he is the primary patron saint of Ireland, the other patron saints being Brigitte of Kildare and Columba. That sounds an awful lot like uh, Columbia, doesn't it? Because it is, yep. <laughs> Patrick was never formally canonized, having lived prior to the current laws of the Catholic Church in these matters. Nevertheless, he is venerated as a saint in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where he is regarded as equal to the Apostles and Enlightener of Ireland. He is also regarded as a saint within the framework of their respective doctrine by the Anglican Communion and the Lutheran Churches. All right, so there's your mainstream mumbus jumbus, which will be held up by every place in officialdom as the way the world works. Now let's get back to the way the world really works which has been covered up, and St. Patrick is playing the cover-up game. 
First of all, you should understand that when spring comes along on the equinox, the sun has come over the equator. Spring will spring. It will be the largest release of energy any time in our world from the first time it happened to the last time it happens. There will never be a larger show of energy ever. All the nature will start to make babies. Everything will spring green. Everything will pop out of the ground and bloom and all this energy that's been stored up in the earth since winter will come to be. It's about life. What's St. Patrick? He's a dead saint. And by the way, from my point of view, he's not even a real man in the sense that what they say is he wasn't canonized because he lived too long ago. And by the way, there's this whole controversy. There were two Patricks. Yeah, because you molded him on an older dude who you would have called pagan, who was telling people the truth that today is the equinox. We need to go out and appreciate nature that allows us to be here. If I had to guess, and this is totally a guess, he may have even been a druid or something like that. I haven't looked that far into it, and I just don't have time. But let's get down to it. Known as the Apostle of Ireland. Look at the Catholic things of him. He's always green. You know why? Because it gets green in the spring. It's the emerald green isle that we're talking about, and green is spring. And that's that. So we go on to say he lived apparently... He couldn't have been canonized because it was too long ago before the church can canonize him. So like I said, he's based on an older figure, uh, is why they have the controversy of the possible two Patricks, which will never be taken seriously. But it goes on to say, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church, where he is regarded as, wait for it, equal to the apostles. Why is he equal to the apostles? Because each apostle represents a station of the sun in the acceptable year of the Lord or a particular month for layman speak. On the equinox, day and night are equal. That is why he is described as equal to the apostles. He is further described as an enlightener. Why is he an enlightener? Because the sun comes over the equator on the day of the vernal equinox. And this is referenced as one place that we've covered a lot in the language of the scripture of the book of John. I just put up an image on my Twitter account. It's like stained glass. And you'll see that I put, verily, verily, I say unto thee, the words verily, verily, for those who have eyes to see with, comes directly from the idea of the sun and a very positive statement like, yes, absolutely. You could bet your life on it. Very is another word, and it relates directly to the vernal equinox, which is why we know when that scripture in John, verily, verily, I say unto thee, is uttered, we know we are in spring. And in the stained glass that I put up, it shows John next to Peter looking at the equinox because his gospel part of it is in the equinox, and it shows St. Peter looking down at the cross, which is a representation of of the solstices and the equinox, uh, which used to be shown on every map, uh, map. So there is the story. And these things, there's no reason, man. If you understand what it actually means and what's going on here, why did they change it? Well, here's why. What do people do on St. Patrick's Day? They go inside, they worship a dead saint, maybe some of them, when this is all about life today, when the equinox is here, and they drink green beer. I told you why green matters, and they get wasted. It completely subdues the human mind away from the natural world. 
we will probably do a future episode where I take every I forget the word. In the Catholic faith, there are these days you have to observe. You have to go in mass. Well, what are they doing? They're saying, get out of nature, come inside, feast, do all these things we do, and forget nature. Leave it behind and pay attention to what we're telling you. That's why. So there it is. Think I dropped anything, Jason? That was a little, I'm so tired. I feel like I'm not describing things very well right now. No, that worked well, and I just looked it up, and supposedly he was born in 373 AD, so that would be at a time when records weren't exactly accurate, to say the least. Well, I think it's pretty clear. It's the same, you know, in part one of 300, we told the story of how they took all the cultures of the world that appreciated nature, paid attention to the sky clock, knew when a solstice was, and they slowly started turning the worship to something else to cover the importance of nature. The sky clock is all there is. And everything, you know, go go look at my recent Twitter post. I might not be on Twitter for much longer. I took a piece of scripture from the book of Job. As a matter of fact, I'll read it right now because I can see what I did. Here is Job 38, 31 through 33. This is straight out of the book of Job. And please don't bash on me for the version I used. I used a version because the, the English is more common for people to understand today. I could have gone back to other versions but when I explain this to you, if you can tell me this isn't all about the sky clock and the fact that it rules this world, then I don't know what to tell you. Here we go. Job 38, 31 through 33. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? What is Maseroth, you may ask? It's the Zodiac. So I'll read that again. Can you bring out the Zodiac in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? We're talking about Ursa Major or the Big Dipper or that portion of the sky in the north. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Let me say that again. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Do you see how straightforward what you're being told is? Last one, can you set their dominion over earth? These are important things to be able to understand without some man in black telling you to, to think it means some other thing or wrap a fancy story around you. You're being told verbatim the importance of the sky clock and the word Maseroth is directly referring to the Zodiac. Um, there was a time when the entire world was aware of these things and unfortunately places like the Vatican decided that they were going to hide it and they did a pretty good job. But anyhow, there's all that, Jason. Uh, you're ready to jump into part two. I think we left off with so-called St. Peter, the rock, the foundation of the Vatican. Uh, and we're going to pick up with Il Papa, the Pope. That's right. That's right, because Peter is supposed to be technically the first Pope or the Bishop of Rome, however you want to look at it. But let's pick up with the definition here. The Pope in Latin, Papa. Romanized Papas, or Father, also known as the Supreme Pontiff, the Pontifex Maximus, or the Roman Pontiff, Romanus Pontifex, is the Bishop of Rome, chief pastor of the worldwide Catholic Church, and head of state, or sovereign, of the Vatican City State. 
the primacy of the Bishop of Rome is largely derived from his role as the apostolic successor to St. Peter, to whom primacy was conferred by Jesus, giving him the keys of heaven and the powers of binding and loosing, naming him as the rock upon which the church would be built. So you can kind of see what goes on here, um, even in where the Pope is claiming he's driving his power. When you build a building, you need a solid foundation, and that's what this is representing in mental ideas, if you see how that works. And by the way, I should have put the note in here, Jason, pontifex or pontiff, uh, I forget exactly what, there's the idea of bridge builder attached to that somewhere along the line, um, which brings in a whole other set of ideas. But basically, we could ask a simple question. So at some point, the Universal Catholic Church uh, makes a claim that they are what would you say? Vicar of Christ in this world, right hand of God in this world. They made a claim. Did anyone try to rebut that claim? Uh, did it go unrebutted? I don't know. Did it go unrebutted and then someone got beat down? I don't know the answer to this, but does that make it true? Well, mainstream history, we should add, does say that there are other churches sprouting up at the same time. So what does that mean? Why does the Catholic Church get to say that they're the only line of succession from Jesus? What about the Jerusalem Church that were the Jews at the time, supposedly starting from the teachings of Jesus and moving forward? Who knows? But there are claims that there were other churches started at that time. This is very important to understand that Rome said, no, it's us. Right. You make a good point. Um, we're, I wasn't going to splinter off into all these other ideas, but there's even a, a schism within the so-called Vatican and the, the ideas of the more orthodox and probably more straightforward split that came off it. Uh, I guess what you're looking at here, to, to sum it simply, is might made right. I suppose the way this was pulled off in the end is they were the mightiest in one way or another, probably the cleverest too. Also assisting with the spreading of early Christianity, we have Paul the Apostle, commonly known as St. Paul, and he was also known by his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus. He was a Christian apostle, although not one of Jesus' 12 apostles, who is said to have spread the teachings of Jesus in the first century AD. He is generally considered to be one of the most important figures of the apostolic age, as he is said to have founded several Christian communities in Asia Minor, as well as in Europe, from the mid-30s to the mid-50s AD. So I'm not going to get into pulling apart or more closely examining the individuals that we're all aware of, we've all heard of. There's no point to it, and there's no upside to it. And by the way, uh, so much of this can mean so many things to so many different people. And all of it within the book we call the Bible, to me, is extremely, extremely important. Um, it's unfortunate some of the people who tried to teach us what it means uh, either didn't understand or were directed to do unhelpful things. But there are other things available to us right now, like the writings of the Christian mystics. Recently, I've talked about a book uh, that Michael Hoffman sent me, Meditations on the Tarot. This is what it used to be, where it wasn't so bigoted. Our way is the only way. And if you're not doing our way, then we're at war, or we're going to fight, or whatever it was. There were all these traditions. And the truth is, you can't really separate the Hebrew ideas from at least the Old Testament, minimally the Old Testament, and that did bring in older ideas like the tarot and everything else. And if you look into the work of the Christian mystics, as one example, um, I think Curtis is the author of most of that stuff. Originally, the Order of Fifteen name changed later to uh, the Order of Christian Mystics, I think. 
it's a good view on a more open-minded assessment and a true deeper look at what scriptures can mean. And I think that's the main point here. And as we go through the lines, uh, we'll point out where we can, but we're not really going to take apart the personages per se. Everybody's heard of them and everybody has their own idea about why that's valuable or why it's not. Judaism as a religion seems to have been granted certain rights by various Roman leaders. Christianity developed out of Jewish traditions, however, it had no such protections. The persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire occurred throughout most of the Roman Empire's history, beginning in the first century AD. Rome had always been a polytheist empire, and as early Christianity in its various forms spread, it came into ideological conflict with the imperial cult of Sol Invictus, as well as the practice of making sacrifices to the deified emperors, which violates Christianity's prohibition on idolatry. Early Christians are thought to have been punished for not conforming to officially sanctioned religious norms. At the time, Roman authorities did not oppose Christianity, but they did persecute whoever refused to pledge loyalty to the state. Since Christians refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods, which is the equivalent of an oath of allegiance, persecution followed. This included harassment at the local level, as well as officially sanctioned or decreed persecution. The viewpoint on Christianity would change over the next few centuries. I'm going to add a couple things here. Um, I would point out that the idea of the sacrifice or blood sacrifice, there's a lot more going on in a blood sacrifice than I care to study or look at um, because I think we should respect all life. So I don't really want to know about it. But part of that is there's a prohibition on idolatry. You know, look as the Vatican pulled us into the, uh, the Renaissance, what happened to the idea of idolatry? I mean, take an honest assessment. You can't separate idolatry from all that kind of statues and the art and everything else going on. Um, but at the beginning, we opened up by talking about, in public, so often the Jewish community was treated badly. Now, there's a lot about the banking that brought heat on them. I mean, you can go through history and find out countries were trying to throw them out, but it wasn't because they were Jews. It was the banking practices almost every time that got people mad. But here's something out of Michael Hoffman's books. I didn't realize I was going to talk about this. I'm going to pull it from memory. I'll be in the ballpark, right? The exact particulars will be close. At one point, it is said that the Torah, and I think maybe the Talmud and other things that were Hebrew writings, were going to be lost to the Hebrew community uh, through the back door um, where they already had Hebrews hiding in the Vatican and rabbis and stuff to help them with the language of the Old Testament. They secretly took the book that was about to be lost forever, went to a book creator that was controlled by the Pope, and they made one of the nicest books ever printed to save those writings, to put a fine point on it. Um, and yet they were lying to everybody about it in public. And uh, in no way am I suggesting to you that those writings should have been lost or endangered in the first place. But I'm pointing out they're being unbigoted behind closed doors in a way. And then in public, they're getting everyone to hate each other. And that is so much of the us and them tactic that has followed all this all the way through. And we have a note here again from the Secret Society of Moses Saul Invictus emperors from the Ella Gabalus to the Galini from, I can't pronounce the name, an emperor named Ella Gabalus to Gallianus and Julianus, the apostate, 
were extremely favorable to Judaism. And these are notes shown that at certain points, it was recognized that these older writings from this other part of the world, uh, maybe among some of the oldest that they were getting their hands on it, that I don't know, they were important to them. And later on, we were all taught to be bigoted about them. Religious viewpoints in the empire will be changing over the course of the next few centuries. The history of the Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, dates back to the founding of the city by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. Jews in Alexandria played a crucial role in the political, economic, and religious life of Hellenistic and Roman Alexandria, with Jews comprising about 35% of the city's population during the Roman era. Alexandrian Jewry were the founders of Hellenistic Judaism and the first to translate the Torah from Hebrew to Koine Greek, a document known as the Septuagint. Many important Jewish writers and figures came from or studied in Alexandria, such as Philo, Ben Sira, Tiberius Julius Alexander, and Josephus. The position of Alexandria's Jewry began deteriorating during the Roman era as deep anti-Semitic sentiment began developing amongst the city's Greek and Egyptian populations. This led to the subsequent Alexandrian pogrom in 38 AD and the Alexandria riot in 66 AD, which was in parallel with the outbreak of the First Jewish-Roman War. Alexandria's Jewish population began to diminish, leading to a mass emigration of Alexandrian Jews to Rome, as well as other cities in the Mediterranean and in North Africa. By the beginning of the Byzantine era, the Jewish population had again increased, but suffered from the persecutions of the Christian church, and during the subsequent Muslim conquest of Egypt, the number of Jews in Alexandria increased greatly, with a possible estimate of around 400,000. By the way, do you think there's a possibility that Jewish persecution during the start of Christianity could have something to do with the fact that Jews are blamed with crucifying their Messiah? Well, there's all kinds of arguments like that that were used to create the us and them, when the truth is the Jewish people per se were just other people living in the way that they live. The problem, and it's always the problem, were the people with power in the case that we've tried to make here, something like 24 priestly families, but you started by talking about 66 AD. It's around 70 AD when it's claimed that whatever's in Israel at this time gets knocked over. People are hauled off to Babylon. We've covered this in other episodes. The Bible is actually, the older parts of the Bible are actually rewritten by Ezra, and that also is covered uh, in the Secret Society of Moses. They cover that, but you see, part of what's gone on here is the old Hebrew stuff goes way, way back. And when you start to read meditations on the tarot and the Christian mystics, it always has to relate to Hebrew, the language, the tarot particularly, and the numbering of the tarot, and all these things that were helping people get into deeper meaning of Christian scriptures. So in my mind, that's part of it. Make them the enemy, make people hate on them, and they'll have no respect for these older traditions. And the truth is, there's a lot of things for us to be upset about, man, that banking has caused I mean, look, we're still living under the banking, but that is not a race in general. That is probably a bloodline. And even if you can't prove that out, which I think you probably could, it's a small group of powerful individuals. And by the way, 
they're throwing their own people under the bus or what are what people think are their own and that's too what the vatican is up to ushering in these important smart rabbis with all this occult information and scholarly talent in the back door well they're just banging down the jewish population in general out in the public view and of course it's no different in some ways it seems simplistic and maybe a little rude to say this but this is sunday night football us and them just on a much more serious kind of unsavory level okay another note drawn from the secret society of moses while the condemnation of all other religions, in particular the deviations from Orthodox Christianity, was firm and unreserved, the Jewish religion was permitted according to the pretext that it served as testimony to the authenticity of what was written in the Hebrew scriptures. And how could you argue that's not true? Um, even if you just take the first five books of the Bible, what's also called the Torah, those were originally written in other languages, weren't they? So why would you even have to hide the fact that you had experts on that language to better understand it? And by the way, there's a whole, there, it's no different than the things we're taught. There's a whole occulted tradition in those writings as well. And who do you think is going to understand what the occulted information is? Well, it's going to be the learned, the special families, the priestly families. We're about to cover where the rubber meets the road and one of the biggest well-researched things in the secret society of Moses. And I'll just say it one more time for Jason jumps in. Was Moses a real man? Are any of these dates even in the ballpark of reality? To me, it doesn't matter uh, because this is all written into the history line. And you can actually assume, I think safely, that most of these so-called emperors or Caesars were historical figures on some level. But you're about to find out they all came from the same damn place, from the same bloodline. And guess what? So-called Josephus Flavius somehow wormed his way into the Flavian gens or the Flavian bloodline. The Flavian dynasty ruled the Roman Empire between 69 and 96 AD, encompassing the reigns of Vespasian, 69 to 79, and his two sons Titus, 79 to 81, and Domitian, 81 to 96. The Flavians rose to power during the Civil War of 69, known as the Year of the Four Emperors. After Galba and Otho died in quick succession, Vitalius became emperor in mid-69. His claim to the throne was quickly challenged by legions stationed in the eastern provinces, who declared their commander Vespasian emperor in his place. The Second Battle of Bedriacum tilted the balance decisively in favor of the Flavian forces, who entered Rome on December 20th. The following day, the Roman Senate officially declared Vespasian emperor of the Roman Empire, thus commencing the Flavian dynasty. Although the dynasty proved to be short-lived, several significant historic, economic, and military events took place during their reign. Let me once again stress the economic side of that. Yeah, well, let me say that I'm just calling poppycock. From the other research and from the books that I've mentioned, the Flavian dynasty from a single town, which I think I have notes later, will identify all that, end up being every so-called Caesar from a certain point forward all the way up through Constantine, um, all the way up until they're starting to flip Mithraism into the Vatican from the cave underneath. But when you read things like the Flavian forces entered Rome on December 20th, really on this on the winter solstice, so is this just more shuffling around of what actually happened or, you know, it, you can't know anymore. But I think 
Jason, I have a good note, and I thought it was going to be here, on the town that all the Flavians come from and all the emperors come from, all of them, from a certain point forward until it's over. And by the way, look at Constantine. Everybody, you know, there's statues of him. He's the man who made Christianity legal and, and did all these things, and he's such a big deal. Guess what? He was supposedly emperor of the known universe, to make a pun. He was not allowed to be in the city of Rome. It's a bit like the Queen of England cannot enter the city of London without permission. Well, what's that tell you? That one of those two things is mightier than the other, or you wouldn't have to ask permission to enter. That's exactly what's going on with Constantine. On the one hand, in history, is portrayed as King Bufu, Lord of it all, but there's a power there that has basically told him, you go set camp somewhere else. You are not welcome in the city of Rome. So we've got so many notes here. You guys have no idea. So we're going to cover a few of the things I just mentioned later. But again, uh, Secret Society of Moses, some other places, uh, you can see a logical, realistic version of what's true. And again, uh, history is making these other claims like the Flavian dynasty didn't last very long. I don't accept it for a second. Titus Flavius Josephus, born as Joseph ben Matit Yahu, was a first-century Romano-Jewish historian who was born in the city of Jerusalem, which at this time was a part of Roman Judea. He is said to have come from a father of priestly descent and a mother with claims to royal ancestry. Josephus initially fought against the Romans during the First Jewish-Roman War as head of Jewish forces in Galilee until surrendering in 67 AD to Roman forces led by Vespasian after the six-week siege of Jotapata. Josephus claimed the Jewish messianic prophecies that initiated the First Jewish-Roman War made reference to Vespasian becoming emperor of Rome. In response, Vespasian decided to keep Josephus as a slave and possibly an interpreter. After Vespasian became emperor in 69 AD, he granted Josephus his freedom, at which time Josephus assumed the emperor's family name of Flavius. Flavius Josephus then fully defected to the Roman side and was granted Roman citizenship. He became an advisor and friend of Vespasian's son Titus, serving as his translator when Titus led the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Since the siege was unable to stop the Jewish revolt, the city's destruction and the looting and destruction of Herod's temple, also known as the Second Temple, soon followed. Josephus is said to have recorded Jewish history with special emphasis on the 1st century AD and the First Jewish-Roman War, which lasted from 66 until 70 AD, which included the Siege of Masada. His most important works were The Jewish War, written around 75, and Antiquities of the Jews, around 94. The Jewish War recounts the Jewish revolt against Roman occupation. Antiquities of the Jews recounts the history of the world from a Jewish perspective for an ostensibly Greek and Roman audience. Josephus' works are the chief source next to the Bible for the history and antiquity of ancient Palestine and provide a significant and independent extra-biblical account of such figures as Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, John the Baptist, and possibly even Jesus of Nazareth. The authenticity and accuracy of Josephus' works are debated on a regular basis. Well, it's actually worse than debated. You can find out complete 
falsehoods and there's it's problematic when you know that he's the, basically the only game in town nonetheless this is what's written into the the history that everyone uses so you'd imagine everything they want there is encoded in there but if any of this is true this is the beginning of the fall of the roman empire from the inside out by the very man who we're talking about so he's battling remember you see so many movies where like the the top, the high even in like uh, last of the mohicans right there are two armies fighting one of them has to surrender and the head of the one army says you know what you guys are honorable if you just quit you can leave with your guns and they treated each other with respect um so i suspect that's kind of what's going on here you got the head of one army gets knocked over by rome supposedly but it's more than that he's supposedly a slave then he's freed then he's given the flavius name um just saying and as time goes on Rome will be taken down from the inside. All the real aristocracy of Rome will be replaced with a family bloodline. And the Flavians will all come from one city to create all the so-called Caesars going forward until the Vatican runs it all. Something along those lines. It's quite a thing. But if you look at the beginning here, Titus Flavius Josephus, born as Joseph ben Matayahu, or whatever it is, was a first-century Romano-Jewish historian who was born in the city of Jerusalem and was part of Roman Judea at that time. He is said to have come from a priestly father, there's the priestly class, and the descent, and this will be how he claims Jewishness, I guess, has to come through the mother of royal ancestry. There's Josephus. So, if it's true that all this is correct, he wormed his way into a very powerful family, very close to the rulers of Rome, and it all went downhill after that over time. Pope Linus is considered the second bishop of Rome. This would, of course, be after Peter, who is supposed to be the first bishop of Rome, due to what Jesus says in the Bible. His pontificate endured from around 67 AD until his death in approximately 76 AD. Among those to have been pope, Peter, Linus, and Clement I are specifically named in the New Testament. Linus is named in the valediction of the second epistle to Timothy as being with Paul the Apostle in Rome near the end of Paul's life. He is followed as Pope by Anacletus. So the only thing I would mention here, it's quite a thing. Uh, these names were mentioned in the New Testament. So that's a thing, right? Must be important to have made it there. Pope Anacletus, also known as Cletus, was the third bishop of Rome, following Peter and Linus. He served as pope between around 79 AD and his death around 92. Cletus was a Roman who, during his tenure as pope, is known to have ordained a number of priests and is traditionally credited with setting up about 25 parishes in Rome. Although the precise dates of his pontificate are uncertain, he died a martyr perhaps around 91. Cletus is mentioned in the Roman canon of the Mass. His feast day is April 26th. <laughs> His feast day. How is it possible um, that they don't know about these things in a place like that where supposedly ancient Rome, we've got accounts going back supposedly a thousand years before that of things. How is it that they don't know? And every time I read something like this, it's, it doesn't ring true. I'm sorry. It just doesn't ring true. Pope Clement I also known as St. Clement of Rome, is listed as the fourth Bishop of Rome, holding office from 88 to his death in 99. He is considered to be the first apostolic father of the church, 
one of the three chief ones, together with Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch. All right, so we're basically just rolling through what the history that the world accepts uh, from places like Wikipedia is going to claim is correct. And again, if you want to get into it, I've mentioned books here that will take logic and reason and go much further into probably what's likely much closer to the mark. And the last pope we're going to talk about here, Pope Evaristus, was the Bishop of Rome from around 99 to his death around 107. He was also known as Aristus. He is venerated as a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and Oriental Orthodoxy. He is usually accorded the title of martyr. However, there is no confirmation of this. It is likely that he was the Bishop of Rome when John the Apostle died, marking the end of the Apostolic Age. And this Apostolic Age of the first century AD is why I wanted to include these first couple of popes, because to be perfectly honest with you, there is no exact direct evidence that these people are who they are claimed to be by the Catholic Church. Or ever existed, and when you start tying yourself to the supposed Apostle John, it even makes it less believable. But one thing, you know, I had gone through lists of supposed popes from a place like Wikipedia, other places that are a bit better than Wikipedia, that don't get edited a hundred times a day by whoever. Um, so many of them are claimed, like, look at this, he lived 99 to 107, so he made it a whopping eight years. There's a lot of this going on, so hard to know what's actually correct but I'm sure there are real records somewhere. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, which lasted from 306 until 337 AD, Christianity began to transition to being the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Mainstream historians are uncertain about Constantine's reasons for favoring Christianity, and theologians and historians have often argued about which form of early Christianity he may have subscribed to. Constantine ruled the Roman Empire as sole emperor for much of his reign. Some scholars allege that his main objective was to gain unanimous approval and submission to his authority from all classes, and therefore chose Christianity to conduct his political propaganda, believing that it was the most appropriate religion that could fit with the imperial sun god cult of Sol Invictus. Christianity expanded throughout the empire at this time, launching the era of state church of the Roman Empire. Whether Constantine sincerely converted to Christianity or remained loyal to paganism is debated among historians. It is possible, but not known for certain, that Constantine's mother, Helena, exposed him to Christianity. He only declared himself a Christian after issuing the Edict of Milan, writing to Christians, Constantine made clear that he believed that he owed his successes to the protection of the high God alone. The high God alone? Uh, this is all poppycock in my ears. Must have been around noon, right? <laughs> Something like that. And by the way, they're, they're acting like they don't know why he favored Christianity. Well, the tale is he had a dream before a battle and saw a cross in the sky. And, you know, that's the old Latin cliche we hear, by this sign shall you conquer. That's where it comes from, as far as I know. But how can you be uncertain about someone as important as Constantine? But when you do the other research lines, read some of the things I've pointed out, what you come to realize is he is not Lord Bufu, emperor of everything, like they're claiming here. He had the, the capital is Rome. He can't go there, just like the queen can't go to the city of London. In other words, 
there's people above him puppeting him around, telling him what to do. So this idea that somehow, I mean, I guess you could claim he's the sole emperor, but he's not in charge. And it's pretty clear when you look at the geography problems I just pointed out. And again, they even have the gall to mention it was the most appropriate religion, we're talking about Christianity, that could fit with the imperial sun god, the cult of Saul Invictus. Well, of course, because they need to switch over from that to this. So, I mean, pretty much underlines from the mainstream account exactly what was being laying down and how it was done, how ancient Rome became Vatican City. The Edict of Milan was the February of 313 AD agreement to treat Christians benevolently within the Roman Empire. Western Roman Emperor Constantine I and Emperor Licinius, who controlled the Balkans, met in Mediolanum, which is modern-day Milan, and, among other things, agreed to change policies towards Christians following the Edict of Toleration issued by Emperor Galerius two years earlier in Serdica. The Edict of Milan gave Christianity legal status and a reprieve from persecution, but did not make it the state church of the Roman Empire. This did not occur until 380 AD with the Edict of Thessalonica. So there it is, the Edict of Toleration. It's a queue up. They're going to switch from one way that things have been closer to nature, and they're going to switch up to what the Vatican wants to push. Each one of these things, you can see how things are changing. And to make it worse, first you're told that Constantine's the King Lord Bufu. If you read, you'll see there were other people around. He has to get with Emperor Licinius uh, to make an agreement to do this. So they were both on board, and they were both on board because I would suggest there was a thing above them. Maybe we could call it the central bank of their time. Whatever it's called, they were both being directed. Emperor Constantine the Great began construction on Old St. Peter's Basilica between 319 and 333 AD. This church had been built over the small shrine believed to mark the burial place of St. Peter, though the tomb was supposedly smashed in 846 AD. The church contained a very large number of burials and memorials, including those of most of the popes from St. Peter up to the 15th century. Like all of the earliest churches in Rome, both this church and its successor had the entrance to the east and the apes at the west end of the building. Since the construction of the current St. Peter's Basilica, the name of Old St. Peter's Basilica has been used for its predecessor to distinguish the two buildings. All right. So, I mean, I think we're coming to the top of the hour here, but one of the, the all these little details that are actually important get embedded in an offhand way. So, both this church and its successor had the entrance to the east. Why? Because the sun rises in the east and the apse at the west of the building. Um, why? Because that's where the sun goes to set and there's no separating at all. And basically what you see uh, with most modern religious traditions that became corporations and became so modern in the, in the way we recognize today, controlling, and this is what you believe. And if you don't believe what your gang believes here, then you're out. And all this kind of control of thought is moving away from nature, which was the foundation for it all at one point. Or maybe I could say that in a more helpful way. It is some of the deeper meaning squirreled away where people won't remember it or get back at it while they concentrate on surface narratives that are less helpful for the actual spiritual path of living beings. 
St. Peter's Basilica became a spiritual center for Christian pilgrims, leading to the development of housing for clergymen and the formation of a marketplace that became the thriving commercial district of Borgo. Following an attack by Saracen pirates that damaged St. Peter's in 846, Pope Leo IV ordered the construction of a wall to protect the Holy Basilica and its associated precincts. And by the way, the Vatican becoming like this major center had already been a thing by this point. So Pope Leo the Lion IV uh, ordered the construction of a wall to protect the Holy Basilica. I'm just not gonna. All these mainstream accounts, there's so much of it, which is why I like the books I've been mentioning. It's a narrative that is accepted as true with no reason for being accepted as true. And by the way, under episode 300, I went in and I listed links to three books, uh, one of them dealing directly with the Sistine Chapel. And from people who understand the Jewish religion and the language, taking apart the artwork, and it's quite an eye-opener. It is such an eye-opener as to say that here's the Vatican supposedly serving the Christians of the world with the New Testament idea of the good news, and underhandedly, they're sneaking all this older kind of Old Testament Hebrew-based art in and using excuses in one way or another. And it also tells you the truth, or what I consider to be much closer to the truth, about Figures like Michelangelo, who from that work was probably bar mitzvahed at uh, age 13, where you go out and get a job. It's quite a thing to see a more realistic view of what's gone on here. But Jason, we need to take a break here. I need to catch my breath and try to do a better job in hour two because I'm just run down right now. Is there anything we need to add before we uh, come back for hour two? Well, this next point is going to back up something that you've been saying for a while now. It's from an article on a website called RomeWise.com. And you have often said that the Vatican and all things to do with it are built on the concept of death. And this entire article backs up all of that. Indeed. And if we do get around to doing what I was talking about earlier, where we take those saints that have feast days or whatever they're called, where uh, you have to do them, I forget, it's an obligation or something like that, you'll begin to see exactly what we're talking about here. All those saints are dead. It's like your money. Those are dead men on that money. Death, 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 death. St. Patrick, which is what we open with, is one of the most egregious. Here's a natural event in nature the apex of creation by anyone's measure. It's about life. And what are we doing? Worshiping some made up dead dude. Everything we do right now that has led up to where we are is built on an underlying idea of death to include how the law treats each of us. Death, 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 death. And I'm here to tell you, hopefully in this era we're going into, people get tired of all that nonsense and get back to life. If that happens, the world will be a wondrously different place, I would imagine. But from our corporations, who the prefix of their names even tell you what they're about, to how you are treated in this modern world, there's an underlying death tale. And as we mentioned before, uh, the Palatine Hills, originally where all this stuff's going to be, it was a cemetery. And that too is covered in the books I've mentioned. As a matter of fact, I think it's partially covered in the Sistine book because there's a death tale attached to that as well. 
But anyhow, that does bring our one of episode 300.2 or part two of episode 300 to a close. I apologize that I'm a little bit laggy and not so sharp, but I'm just so worn down right now. I need a break, but we will come back and get it together to deliver part two of episode 300.2. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy and higher minded new era. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.